What's up, everybody? It's All-Star and World Series champ Nick Swisher here, and I'm stoked to tell you about my new podcast, The Nick Swisher Show, right here on Podcast One. If you know me, you know I've worn a lot of hats in my career, and each one of them has had highs, lows, and a whole lot of learning in between. And that's exactly what I'm bringing to this podcast. You're going to get crazy interviews with athletes from their struggles to their successes and all their unbelievable superstitions along the way. You're going to hear from hometown heroes that are stepping up to the plate and making positive change and influences in their communities. I mean, we've got scientists, coaches, comedians. I'm telling you, whether you're an athlete, a parent, a coach, or just looking for a little energy in your life, then Home Plate is right here. It's old school soul with new school vibes. It's the Nick Swisher Show, coming soon wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to Dr. True Podcast. We appreciate y'all being here. We appreciate you supporting the people that support us. And uh, don't forget to check out the streaming show. We've been interviewing some very interesting people there. There's all the... All the previous streams and pods are up now at drdrew.com if you want to really try to put together the craziness that we've been through in the last couple of years. Uh, these guys have helped me piece it together because they were there being canceled for raising their hand and saying, uh, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. And uh, you get a sense of really what was happening. So do check that out. And don't forget After Dark, of course. And uh, today we are delighted at uh, – Kate Shanahan's suggestion to bring in Dr. Asim Malhotra. Website is Dr. Fullward, D O C T O R, Asim, A S E E M dot com. Twitter handle is Dr. Asim Malhotra, M A L H O T R A. Dr. Malhotra is the youngest member to be appointed to the UK Board of Trustees for the UK Health Think Tank. King's Fund. He's a cardiologist. He's a visiting professor of evidence-based medicine at the School of Medicine and Public Health in Brazil, in San Salvador, Brazil. He is an expert in prevention, diagnosis, management of heart disease, and uh, I'm guessing he takes on seed oils and other orthodoxy in cardiology. Welcome to the program. Delighted to be here, Drew. Thank you for having me. I gotta, I've got to ask, you said you just came from Parliament, which is... Uh, I mean, are you literally in the chambers where everybody's yelling at each other and the prime minister stands up? And Or is there, are there other parliamentary chambers you go to? Yeah, it's one of the committee rooms, actually, where Got they it. have meetings, special meetings. So it was uh, the all-party parliamentary group on uh, vaccine injuries. Uh, so that's what the uh, where the discussion took place. And I gave a presentation on my latest uh, publication um, in the Journal of Insulin Resistance on um, – curing the pandemic of misinformation on the COVID mRNA vaccine through real evidence-based medicine. It's quite and, a long title. <laughs> and, so, and so what was your point in that? Because I, I'm, this is something that preoccupies me almost every day now. Uh, the idea, particularly in this country, and I'll, I'll show my hand in full before you answer, the idea in this country that vaccine therapy has no age uh, distribution to it and the risk profiles are concerning but poorly defined, that we have an EUA in place, that uh, the drug companies seem to be sitting on their hands in terms of doing the necessary research to properly assess the safety of the vaccines, particularly for certain age groups. In the meantime, we have our regulatory agencies such as the CDC saying, well, and in, in, in a microphone on live television saying the following, well, we're just going to say 12 and above because it simplifies our messaging. We just want to be more simple with our messaging as opposed to 
talking <laughs> arming physicians with the risk benefits for particular gen- sexes, particular age groups. Uh, I'm guessing you spoke on some of these issues. Sure, absolutely. All the issues you've raised are spot on. Um, and that's why my the aim of my paper was to correct this uncertainty, which I have also described as a pandemic of misinformation uh, around this code vaccine and to break down the information in a way that is understandable for patients and doctors, but also more importantly, looking at the framework of evidence-based medicine. So I'm an advocate for evidence-based medicine. We all should be, in fact. As I, 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 can't, I can't understand why anybody I – can't, I can't understand otherwise. It uh, seems no, – I'll, I'll use a fancy uh, term, apodictic, like must be so and cannot be otherwise. Yeah, and I think the reason that we aren't practicing evidence-based medicine, I'll define it very simply in a second, is because of these system failures that ultimately mean that – Big corporations, in this case, big pharma, have increasing unchecked power over our institutions, over the regulator, over government. And essentially, the information that we receive serves their interests, not the interests of the patient. And therefore, informed consent goes out the window. So just to simplify, I mean, I started actually my lecture with um, with the, the evidence-based medicine triad slide. That was originally uh, put together, published in the BMJ, would you believe, 1996. Mm-hmm. So Actually, the solutions to most of the problems in healthcare lie in actually adhering and understanding that elegant um, framework for teaching and practicing medicine. So what do we want to do as doctors, as healthcare practitioners? We want to improve patient outcomes, right? And that specifically means treating illness, managing risks, um, and, uh, and also often, more often than not, relieving people's suffering. But to do that optimally, we use our clinical experience, Drew, um, whatever capacity we've had that clinical experience, our clinical intuition, our knowledge in medicine, the best available evidence. And last but not least, we must take into consideration individual patient preferences and values. That's where informed consent comes in. But the problem we've got is evidence-based medicine has really become an illusion. It's been hijacked. The best available evidence, unfortunately, in even preceding COVID, has been um, commercially influenced, has been a lot of the information that doctors make to make clinical decisions is biased and corrupted by uh, pharmaceutical industry interests. And therefore, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out if we're getting information that's biased and corrupted, we're either going to get suboptimal outcomes for our patients or at worst, we're going to do harm. And then, and then the informed consent comes in to, to answer your question by breaking the information down. What does, so what, did, what does the COVID vaccine do? Like I, I, looked at inf- I, I tried to calculate using real-world data and go through it and walk through walk people through this in my paper. What's the absolute benefit of the vaccine? Best and best available evidence. And what is the likely prevalence of serious adverse events based upon the highest quality level of data? And we're pretty close to that. And the conclusions are very sobering. They're disturbing. And I concluded my paper, and I and I, I actually don't think I'm, and we can discuss this. I don't even think it's debatable that the mRNA vaccines need to be suspended for everybody. I don't think it's even worthy of debate because when you look at those cold, hard facts, it, 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 you know, people will realize straight away, like, hold on a minute, this is, this is very disturbing. Uh, it's not speculation. It's, again, it's uh, randomized controlled trial data, certainly for harms, as well as, uh, you know, all the pharmacovigilance data we have. And, it, and it's, it's a mess. It's a real mess. So I actually have spoken about this. I, I, I was on Fox News. I, I said very clearly that these vaccines need to be suspended pending an inquiry. And of course, now, whatever, you know, we can discuss the details of that. 
It's too bad you don't live in this country because you'd be silenced immediately. You'd be kicked off every platform. And here in California, we have a new law that you would actually lose your license. You would get all somebody would have to do is complain, and then you would have an immediate action by the Board of Medical Quality Assurance for espousing anything in relation to COVID other than quote standard of care. Well, what is the standard of care? Which is often wrong. I mean, I've lived through. I've been a physician longer than you. I've lived through three waves of disgustingly wrong standards of care, to which I stood up and was roundly crushed by many different agencies, but not the state board, which is now uh, on on board with this nonsense. I, I want to, I want to, um, though, frame something that it, it concerns me when we talk about the excessive influence of pharma. People become hysterical about this. We are not talking about some guy twirling his mustache with a bag of cash coming over to a, an MP or going to a regulator. We are not talking about that. That does not happen. What we are talking about is many of these people that are in re- regulatory positions of authority are often in direct communication with drug companies and often the people in the drug companies were once on those regulatory committees and the people that are on those committees are looking forward to joining pharma one day. So they're biased. They, it's not that they are being paid off in some sort of explicit way. I mean, at least I don't yeah. think so. But they, this is yeah. a bias. They don't want to upset pharma because that's their future employer. That's where they're going to make their living after having been a public servant. A- am I getting that part correct? And I want people to – so they don't yeah. go hit off in the you know in a, in a crazy story and then themselves are called, oh, uh, you know, you're excessive. Stop it. It's not, it's not the guy with the mustache twirling. Yeah, absolutely right, Drew. This is not about conspiracy theories. This is the way business is done. And to directly uh, elaborate on the point, the very articulate point you made, this is very simple. People can understand this. Money clouds judgment, and people won't back that. People rarely bite the hand that feeds them. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So this is what's happening. The regulatory capture is this, and the 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 root cause of the problem actually is the legal entity that is the corporation. So one of the things I outline is that people need to understand that drug companies are, have a legal obligation, fiduciary obligation to produce profit for their shareholders. They are not legally actually required to give you the best treatment, although most right. people would like this to be the case. Right. And the real scandals, the real problem, is that those with a duty to patients and scientific integrity, doctors, institutions, and medical journals and regulators, they collude with industry for ultimately financial gain. But it isn't, you know, it's just that un- a lot of it is invisible, uh, invisible power as well. So, you know, uh, it's also the information that gets out disseminated uh, into the media um, as well because yeah. of those biases. Yeah. Right? It's, and they are it seems to controlling me that, the narrative for their commercial uh, influence. Of course, of course, especially in this country. It, it seemed, it's odd to me that it happened in both of our countries, but it seems to me, and you, I want you to confirm or, or, or refine this idea for me. I, I started thinking about, you know, why how did, how did this happen? How did we get here? And is it as simple as public funds started dwindling and private funds for research and other everything started accelerating and that's where you went to get money to do your research and to, you know, do what you needed to do scientifically? Yes, Drew. So I've been thinking about this for a long time and even prior to the COVID pandemic, I have been a very outspoken critic of drug industry influence over medical guidelines, over doctors, ultimately causing 
unnecessary harm to patients and have tried on two or three occasions even to call for a public inquiry involving the government and did that through various media, went to the European Parliament in 2018 uh, to speak about this. And um, no, you're absolutely right. This is really uh, what, how this started. The roots of this, certainly in the modern era, seem to be uh, neoliberal economic policies, I'm yeah. sure well-intentioned yeah. at the time, yeah. by two leaders that we both know, Ronald Re- Reagan, Reagan yeah. and Margaret Thatcher That's what I in this country. That's what I figured. And what's happened is, you're absolutely right, over since the 1980s, these corporations have got more and more power. So, for example, if you go back to the 1980s, 1990s, certainly in this country, most of the research funding for medical research was publicly funded. Mm-hmm. Now most of it's pharmaceutical industry funded. Right. right. So you can understand and explain why that happens. But the problem is the interests of the drug industry is it's not just as simple as, you know, we're going to do our best to give you the best drug and then we're going to slightly tweak the way that we present the information. The way that they function, we have you know historical evidence, especially in the United States of I would have to name any particular company because most of them have been involved. But most of the top 10 drug companies have been found been found guilty of quite serious fraud in the last couple of decades. And the problem is nothing has changed in the system to stop them committing those frauds again. And that's why what happened now, and I explained in my paper in the Journal of Insulin Resistance, in many ways, what's happened now is was, was actually predictable. So we ultimately have got one of the poorest pharmacological interventions for efficacy, i.e. the COVID vaccine, one of the worst we've ever seen in the history of medicine in terms of harm. But wait for it probably the most, if not one of the most lucrative in the history of medicine as well. Mm. Join those dots together and you realize there's a system failure here. And a weird press that demands this, this co- compliance. This, you know, I, there's, there's some FOIA documents now that are coming out in this country, email exchanges and letters and whatnot, that show clearly a lot of the excesses that were, the government got into was because of fear of the media. They were, they were fearful of the New York Times editorial board. Why the hell did they have an opinion? Why did anybody listen to them? Are they medically trained? Of course not. They shouldn't have had a place at the table, let alone be driving the emotions and the policies of high-level government officials. It's the, it was, this was the strangest thing in, in history as far as I'm concerned. There, there are a couple other yeah. things that, that came to mind for me is that uh, a lot of our younger peers appear very protocol-driven to me. They're not thinking. And as such, they kind of froze in place when they were told to just stand down. Am I getting that correct as well? Yeah, absolutely. Critical thinking went out the window. Um, And in terms of the media, uh, yes, the, the biggest influence on public opinion is from the mainstream media. And of course, public opinion will then shape what the politicians do. So Pharma realized a very long time ago, a lot of these big corporations, that if you can fund or capture the media, then it's a win-win for them. A lot of people, even doctors, Drew, a lot of doctors get their information from the mainstream media. I'll tell you an interesting story. Last That's, that year, is when crazy. I, That's crazy. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how crazy this is. Last year, when I became more aware there was a problem with the vaccine, and by the way, I must mention, I was actually one of the first to have two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. I was on Good Morning Britain helping tackle vaccine hesitancy because I didn't even conceive of the possibility at the beginning that a vaccine could cause any harm. Me now too. Me too. I, I was with you. I was running. Well, I got COVID trying to get the vaccine. My hospital, we had a different problem here. We had this equity of outcome policy in public health. And because I didn't fit the right profile, even though I was taking care of COVID patients, I had to go to the back of the line. I was running around the hospital trying to get the vaccine. I got COVID running around the hospital instead. Wow. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. No. So Super so I so stuff. I um you know once I became aware of all of this and realized there's a problem, the next thing that happens is um and I was actually about to travel to the states. I have relatives in California. And um, I, I heard, you know, they were, they were in this country. We've never done this before. They introduced this for all NHS staff, National Health Service staff, to have that. There was, it was mandated that they have the vaccine. I thought, this is very odd. Yeah. So I started a campaign in a way. I started getting every opportunity on the BBC, on Sky News, on GB News. I was there saying, listen, this is unscientific. It's unethical. We know that the data on the vaccine stop, doesn't really stop transmission. Therefore, it's an individual choice issue. We can't be mandating this. And we had about you know, 70 to 80 to maybe 100,000 NHS staff that had refused to take the vaccine, which our NHS was already under strain. That would be a disaster as well, even from a practical perspective, if they were to lose their jobs. So I started campaigning on this. And one of the people I spoke to, you know, I have a, I've grown a network over the years through my public health advocacy. And one of the people I know very well, who was then the, the chair of the British Medical Association, and I had a conversation with him because he was meeting the Secretary for Health. And I said, you need to get this NHS mandate overturned. You need to tell them this is, uh, this is unscientific and it's impractical. And, you know, I had a conversation with him. But my first conversation was over two hours explaining to him all the issues and the problems with the vaccine harms that I'd uncovered. And he said to me, he said to me, Asim, you know what I'll tell you? He says, I can tell you for a fact because I speak to people, including the chief medical officer and people, uh, I don't think any of them have critically appraised the evidence the way you have. And most of them, are getting their information on how good the vaccine is from the BBC. Yeah. Now, Rochelle Walensky also admitted um, not so long ago that her optimism for the vaccine initially came from a CNN news report. Now, Paul Thacker, investigative journalist, pointed out in one of his blogs that CNN news report on the initial benefits of the vaccine, Drew, was almost verbatim a reproduction of Pfizer's press release. You really could not make this up. No, I didn't. Look. I worked at CNN for 10 years and the, the news is created by 23-year-old sort of intern level people. They, they literally put it together. The EP kind of approves everything. They load it into the prompter and that's your news. It, it's, it's disgusting. So anyway, so great. Well, I'm, I'm now more upset than I was even, even before. Let's get into the, the vaccine and what, what you're seeing, what you've uncovered. And I just yeah. – I, I, I have a whole – Series of questions for you about insulin resistance. Generally, I love that it's in the journal, right. journal of insulin resistance, but uh, yeah. that, that's a whole other matter. But go ahead, let's talk yeah. about the vaccine some more. Yeah. So what I wanted to do is just break down in simple terms in the way that people understand what the absolute benefits of the vaccine are for different age groups and what the absolute harms are based upon the best available evidence we have at the moment. And um, when we look at the actual, so first and foremost, what people, a lot of doctors didn't even realize this. The original highest quality data, although of course it's still industry funded data, it's not been independently verified, but even Pfizer and Moderna's original trials didn't show any reduction in COVID mortality, right? Mm. It didn't show any reduction in COVID mortality. It didn't reduction, show any statistically uh, significant reduction in all-cause mortality. It showed a reduction in infection rate. But mm. when you break that down, that reduction in infection rate from the original Wuhan strain was about one in 119, okay? Approximately that. So that was what the, you know, the data was telling us then. But so the, the, so the next question is, what can real world data tell us? Because, OK, it's possible that you didn't show any reduction in COVID deaths in your trial. But it may be when you roll it out to the population, it does have a significant effect. Let's just accept that was the approach that was taken. So what does the evidence tell us on how good the vaccine is in preventing a single COVID death in an individual? OK, so I, we looked at UK data last year during the whole of the Delta wave, I'll come on to Omicron in a second, which is less lethal, over the whole four months. And we had data from the UK 
of uh, people hospital uh, people who died per 100,000 vaccinated versus people that died per 100,000 unvaccinated. So you're then able to give a rough estimate of the benefit of the vaccine. During the Delta wave, um, the highest risk group were people over 80. You had to vaccinate 230 people over the age of 80 to prevent one COVID death. Drew, this is still likely best case scenario because this is not corrected for other issues. Like we know, for example, unvaccinated people are, are more likely to come from low socioeconomic backgrounds. We know they're higher risk of COVID mortality. So th- these are not corrected. So likely still an exaggeration. If you're 70 to 80, it became 520. Under 70, you're talking about at least 1,000, et cetera, okay? Mm. Now, Omicron, more, more interestingly, the wave during the last winter, you had to vaccinate 7,300 people over the age of 80 to prevent one COVID death. And as you get younger, you have to vaccinate more people. This is unbelievable. This is close to um, no, almost zero benefit. So, I mean, let's, so let's, let's help people understand that, that the re- one of the reasons this is the way it is, these numbers are the way they are is that people don't really die of this thing. Number one, and when you get younger, you definitely don't die of it. I mean, it's it's unheard of. I mean, it happens. It's you know, people have all kinds of chronic illnesses and things, and they get this thing that tips them over, of course. But it's exceedingly uncommon. So to save a life, oh my goodness! <laughs> I mean, think well, about exactly what exactly from it, COVID. So then, so then you've got to say, okay, well, if that's the the benefit, still marginal. If, for example, Drew, there was absolutely no harm from the vaccine. No one would be that bothered because you treat many, many people, you right. benefit a few, right. and nobody suffers. Right. Unfortunately, nothing could be further from the truth. So what does the highest quality level of evidence tell us about the serious adverse effects? Not mild effects. Let's focus on serious adverse effects first. Pfizer and Moderna's own data, their own RCT, where things are all essentially supposed to be corrected for all sorts of factors between groups, Right. That was published in the peer-reviewed journal Vaccine. I've spoken to the lead author. There are many eminent scientists involved in that paper. Peter Doshi, University of Maryland, associate editor of the BMJ, Robert Kaplan from Stanford. Joseph Freeman was the lead author. They found that in the actual original trial that led to the approval of the vaccine uh, and, the, and the mandating and the coercion, during the Wuhan strain, one was more likely to suffer a serious adverse event hospitalization, disability, life-changing event, then one was to be hospitalized with COVID. That is extraordinary. Now, the problem is we don't know, this was an average, and because we don't have the raw data, we don't know where it was more prevalent in younger groups or older groups, but this has also been replicated indirectly with real-world data. So we've got the VAERS, we've got Yellow Card Scheme in this country. Norway, I looked at Norway, they were a little bit more open and transparent about how they documented serious adverse events. It was done by a doctor where they thought almost certainly this is a vaccine. And they found, and this is within the first couple of months, by the way, so again, likely underestimate because, uh, you know, I'll talk about other events that are likely to occur further on down the line, especially as a cardiologist. They found that after two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, there was uh, one in 926 people suffered a serious adverse event, right? So look at that. If you're talking about right now, say for over eight-year-olds, now, this is exactly the way we should be aiming to practice ethical evidence-based medicine. That is unfortunately not occurring. And that's what people need to understand. And when they understand that, almost without a shadow of a doubt, Drew, almost everybody, most people will say, no, thank you. You know, I ask patients, what would you do? No, thank you. It sh- and, and, and the other thing, why did I call for suspension? Let's look at historical precedents. Okay. Um, swine flu vaccine, 1976 was suspended because it was found to cause Guillain-Barre syndrome, as you know, 
a debilitating neurological condition in one in 100,000 people. Rotavirus vaccine, 2006, suspended because it caused intersusception, a form of bowel obstruction in one in 10,000 kids. We're talking of a, of a serious adverse event rate of at least one in 800. There is no justification for continuing this. I've had no rebuttals. No one has even come to me, the regulator over here. Nobody has addressed this. They're avoiding talking about it. And I think this is, a, this is an act of willful blindness. It's, it's institutional corruption and it's willful blindness. It's That's hysteria. what we're dealing with. It's hysteria. It's hysteria because their comeback to you would be, well, what do we do? We, we leave people exposed to this deadly illness. It's like, A, it's Omicron, not so deadly. Yes. B, if you're otherwise healthy, 90, if, and let's say you're over 75, 95, 98, you know, 92% survival rate. And we have effective therapeutics. Paxlovid works. It does work. Now, there's some problems with it and this and that, but it works. I've, you know, and plus, we have monoclonal antibodies. We have therapeutics. We have all these other things that have zero to no risk associated with them. So you're not harming anybody with the therapeutics, and, you, and you're at least harming people at the same rate or nearly the same rate as which you're saving people with the vaccine, right? It's roughly same time zone. You know, you're rough, roughly getting adverse events at the rate at which you're saving a life. Now we're from our sponsor, BetterHelp, BetterHelp Online Therapy. Therapists can help you become a better problem solver, making it easy to accomplish the goals no matter how big or small. And, of course, I'm very pleased with the services that BetterHelp has been offering. I've been referring patients, friends, family members, and I myself. I, you know, come on, it's me. I, I always talk about therapy and its benefits. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It is convenient. It is accessible. It's affordable. It's entirely online. So no more excuses. The, the so-called stigma about mental health. You know, I'm afraid you're going to run into somebody in the waiting room or something. I'm sorry, no more. Not with BetterHelp. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapist anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Drew to get 10% off your first month. That is Better, H-E-L-P dot com slash Drew. Do it today. Don't wait. BetterHelp.com slash Drew. I always remind you that uh, health insurance does not always cover the cost of an emergency medical flight. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can still get hit with a substantial deductible or a copay. Protect your family and your finances with an Air Medicare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year. It covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. That is just pennies a day. We all know that the unexpected can happen, and AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listeners, you will get up to a $75 e-gift card when you join. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use offer code Drew. Uh, so it, it's very, very concerning. Now, I, I will tell you my own personal um, appraisal of all this or judgment on it, sort of instinct on it, is uh, if you're over 80 years old, you do get some benefit from the vaccine that's real. That's my that's my sense of it, and uh, you know I've treated a lot of COVID, <laughs> I've lost patients to COVID, and I've seen the vaccine. I I and for some reason, and maybe you can help me with this. Uh, but so let me just say that. So so over seventy five, I'm I'm using it. I I'm applying it. If patients are resistant or have issues with it, we discuss it, and then they don't get it if that's what they want. It's up to them. Um, yes. If you're under 50, I have real concerns. I have, and if you're 28, I have grave concerns because 
you don't need it. You don't. You, you're better. You get better immunity. You might as well get the COVID. You're less likely to get serious. But there's this incredible pushback. Like, but long COVID is destroying people. Even I read a pediatric review last night in the middle of the night. It kept me up. Uh, Doctor Ho- Peter Hotez wrote it that, that there was like a one in a, one in four incidents of long COVID disabling long COVID in children even if they had subclinical Omicron. I was like, what? That, then there'd be nobody in school if that were true. There, what, what like are, complete nonsense. Complete nonsense. Right. It doesn't fit at yeah. all. So this yeah. is the there's his, even There's even a debate about whether long COVID, and I think long COVID, I mean, I've got one patient who's yeah. been quite debilitated, yeah. so I think it's an issue. But the question is how prevalent is well, it? What is I mean, it? there has been some debate in the UK that it's not any more prevalent than other post-viral you know, fatigue illnesses. But and, I think and, it's probably about 1%, isn't it? That's I, 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 yeah, it's maybe a little higher than that. But, but And I've seen it from the vaccine, for sure. I've seen real yeah. bad long stuff from the vaccine too. So, I, what's the incidence? Where's the RCT? Yeah. Where how, how are we going to make these well, judgments? Also, we don't have any evidence to say the vaccine prevents long COVID anyway. I know that's the other issue. So, that's finally, right. even if we accept long COVID is an issue and exists, that's right. does the vaccine make any difference? That's right. the other question, right? And, it, and and there isn't any evidence for that. That they have no evidence for anything, particularly in young in people. In fact, actually, Drew, it's more likely. Well, I mean, certainly if people have COVID. The other issue that I've got very upset by. We know natural immunity is very protective, probably more protective than the vaccine, For longer sure. term effects. For sure. But we also know that if you have the vaccine, having had natural immunity, or certainly within the first few months, you're about three times more likely to suffer systemic side effects. It's complete and total madness, Drew. We have to address it that way. I, I agree. We have to say we can't. We I have agree. to call it out for what it is. Well, it's madness. Now, it's uh, madness you know. to to take these the, the 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 pediatric review I just just uh, mentioned to you. That's the madness. The madness is the hysteria they're all in that prevents yeah. them from looking at these things carefully and objectively. Yeah, and I wonder, Drew, as well. Let's just go back to the roots of this because I think this is really interesting. So. Without understanding the numbers, we're talking about COVID risk as well. So I think a lot of people in their own heads through media, through all of the news stories and all of the people on ventilators, et cetera, and it was constantly just hammered at us. And we can understand, you know, people who don't have that um, necessary understanding in medicine to look at the data critically and try and be objective. We're emotional beings. We respond to seeing people suffer and dying and it has an effect on us. And I think the problem is a lot of people in their own minds had a hugely exaggerated uh, concern over over Hugely. COVID. So there was a Gallup poll. I don't know why this was specifically Democrat voters. I'm not. I'm not partisan in any way. If anything, my my my, uh, my political allegiance is probably more left of center. But there was a Gallup poll um, in America that showed that 50 percent of Democrat voters thought their risk of being hospitalized with COVID was 50 percent, one yeah. in two. Yeah. When it was less than one percent. So without understanding the numbers involved. Um, the public and even doctors are vulnerable to exploitation of their hopes and anxieties by commercial and political interests. And that's exactly what's happened. So but, a lot of the reaction to the vaccine is because of exaggerated fears. But over worldwide, COVID. it's so odd to me that it, I, I watched it happen here and I was in disbelief, but that the whole world developed the contagion of hysteria. It's, yeah. well, it's just a, maybe it's just I, the level of media sort of. Yeah, you know, well, I'm glad you raised that point through. Yeah. yeah, because a lot of this rooted also in China, didn't it? So we've, let's talk about that briefly because I, um, you know, I, one of my friends is actually a, a Chinese broadcast journalist for international Chinese TV. And I texted her a few months ago because I was seeing these pictures when we knew Omicron was mild. Yeah. And you see these, you know, whatever it is, policemen or Chinese authorities going around in hazmat suits. Yes. You know, rounding people up, putting them in cages. It was just, is this real? Is this, is right. this? 
And I messaged her and I said, what's going on here with Omicron? And her, her reply was very interesting. She said, Asim, you've got to understand most Chinese people still think COVID is like Ebola. Touch it and you die. Oh, my God. And even government people. So when you think about the beginning, even the roots of the whole uh, plans of lockdowns, etc., I'm trying to get to the roots of what happened to the WHO. A lot of their policy was they were originally had a plan. They weren't going to do lockdowns. They knew lockdowns probably wouldn't work. So there, there was no plan for lockdowns. They made a U-turn. They made a U-turn because of China, because China convinced the world that uh, a really uh, hardcore, rigorous lockdown, which you would never do in this country, like a military style lockdown contained the virus. It didn't happen. I know people. She told me that people all over China said that COVID spread throughout the whole of China. Of course. So we were misled yes. by China. Lied to. Right? Lied to. We had, though, yeah. And think about the damage that has caused. It's, it's unprecedented. It's shocking. Well, that Absolutely and then what's shocking. wrong with these so-called health officials? Are they just freaking incompetent that they yes. succumb to that? I'm beginning to think yeah. incompetence is a massive issue in our public yeah. health uh, yeah. structure. Ignorance, incompetence, and regulate and capture. Let's not – you know the, the, it's a really bad combination. Really bad. You get bad. people who are not that good critical thinkers. You get people who aren't really acting truly from patient interest. You know, do what these public officials, do you really think without naming people, yeah. they act with the highest integrity, they speak truth to power, they put patient interest first. I don't think any of them do that. I, I, but this is a I, cultural problem, Drew. This is yeah. a cultural problem. I think they have weird sets of priorities. I think they believe they're doing the right thing. They convince themselves of that. They seem unable to change direction. They seem unable to take a th- take responsibility for anything. Just unable to do the things you're supposed to do but, in but, medicine. But Anthony, Fau- but Anthony Fauci saying the words, I watched this, trust the science I know. is one of the most unscientific statements you can make. I know. Medicine, I know. first of all, is not an exact science. I it's know. an applied science. I know. Right? Yes. It evolves. That is not a scientific statement. So is Anthony Fauci completely incompetent or is he captured? What's going on? I need to, we need to ask Anthony Fauci about this. What does he mean, trust the science? That's the most unscientific statement I've ever heard in my life. You know, I, I recently read some stuff about – he was a big hero of mine during the AIDS epidemic. I was very involved in treating AIDS patients. And I, looking back now, some of the procedural biases that he has were evident then and developed full flower during COVID. Two things in particular – one was he kept telling us to scare people. He was like, tell them they're going to be two million dead if they don't wear a condom. Tell them they're going to die. He was like, really like scare people. So that, wow. isn't that interesting? So there was that. And, uh, and the other thing, he was crushing dissent. And I wasn't aware of it at the time because everyone was kind of rowing in the same direction. But now you can see the evidence that when anyone popped up and asked him for a critical appraisal of his position, he would crush them. And that those are the two things that that this particular doctor, who again a hero of mine, manifested in full full bloom during COVID. Let's talk a little bit about the heart and COVID, because I, I I'm still formulating my full opinion on this, and you're going to help me a bit with it. And I, I'm thinking about this every day. We have two issues, maybe more in your mind. We have, A, the well-documented incidence of myocarditis, myocarditis, pericarditis in young men. And to remind people, the part that's astonishing to me, that people go, yeah, but it's mild and it resolves. And, and it's like, yeah, how many cases of myocarditis have you seen in a 25-year-old? And as soon as you did, you would put that kid in a paramedic ambulance. It is a dire medical emergency. He could have a cardiac arrhythmia right in front of you easily 
with myocarditis. It is a dire thing, and you would be you would spend the next six years wringing your hands. Oh shit! Is this is this kid's myocardial function going to drop? Is he is the muscle going to be okay? No way to predict. No way. But suddenly we've all become genius prognosticators on myocarditis. It's mild, no problem. They're going to be fine. How do do we have any idea? Yeah, so um, I, I, I've managed, obviously, many myocarditis patients in my life with viral myocarditis. Uh, my own brother, when I was young, uh, actually was my inspiration for doing cardiology. He died of viral myocarditis. Jesus. So I was 11, he was 13. Oh you know, he, had a, he had just a normal bug, tummy bug. Within a week, Drew, he went in, my, both my parents were GPs as well. We weren't mm. sure what was happening. Oh my God. He went to crashing heart failure and died. So I, 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 had, I understand how bad it can be. I worked in a heart transplant center. I've seen people who are like black belts in karate, just getting a cold and coming in with severe heart failure, needing a heart transplant. Yeah. Right? So yeah. it, it can be horrible. Certainly viral myocarditis can be horrible. Um, so the question is, is this different? Well, first of all, what's the prevalence of myocarditis? Certainly with hospitalizations, we have a range, anything from one in 2,600 from studies in Hong Kong, so maybe one in 7,000. So there's a range there, but these are hospitalized people. That is likely an underestimate because I certainly have picked up many people in the community that didn't know they had myopericarditis and have had, you know, from after the vaccine, by the way. We were talking mm-hmm. about the vaccine. Yeah. So the question then is, what do we know about the clinical sequelae of these patients? Certainly with the ones that are hospitalized, about 80% of them from MRI scans will have a degree of myocardial scar. That's permanent. That in a way is in some ways similar, kind of similar to someone suffering a small heart attack and then living with that for the rest of their lives. So the answer is we don't really know the long-term effects, but certainly common sense will tell us that having a bit of scar in your myocardium is not good because it can be a substrate for arrhythmias or all sorts of problems further down the line. So it, it, listen, I think in the acute sense, uh, I think it's, it's way less problematic than traditional viral myocarditis. Okay, okay? good. But, but it's very prevalent after the vaccine, as you say correctly. It's, it's an issue. And um, and certainly, yeah, it's a, it's well, a problem. I, I, well, it that's, that's of, flagrant. Yeah. That's you know overt myocarditis. Now we're hearing that there may the subclinical myocarditis may be much more prevalent than we knew. Now here's the question I, I have for you. I've not asked yeah. a cardiologist. I, as an internist, I'm seeing a lot of young and middle aged men with supraventricular arrhythmias that are somewhat recalcitrant, requiring ablation. All of a sudden, yeah. magically. Yes. Yeah. It, it's a. I, I think it's causal. And the reason I say that twofold, I'm the same. I'm seeing patients who, you know, as a cardiologist, you got to understand very well risk factors for AF. Who are the people that clearly a- come Atrial in? fibrillation, and for those of you who don't know. Atrial fibrillation. Yeah, yeah. And you know straight away, like, it's, a, it's always classically there's something. that excess alcohol yeah. or the hypertensive or something. Thyroid disease. These people, these people are coming in with no known explanation yep, yep. other than the vaccine recently. Yeah. How, how, how recent? How recent? How recent? Oh, within a few weeks, usually. Within yeah, a few so weeks. it's like two to six weeks. Okay, go ahead. Get this. Yeah, it, say. Seems to be, it seems to be within a few weeks. Get this. Um, we'll come on to heart attacks later, by the way, because I've got a different theory on that, or, or I think there's other, other evidence for that. But in terms of superventricular arrhythmias, Drew, wait for this. The World Health Organization, before the vaccine rollout, actually endorsed a list of potential serious adverse events that could happen with the mRNA vaccines. Mm. And they, before I tell you what's on that list, some of the things on the list, they based it on four bits of data. Animal studies, uh, other uh, side effects from other vaccines in the past, the mRNA technology, and COVID and the spike protein itself. And they said these are the things that could happen. Superventricular arrhythmia is one of those. It's in yeah, there. There you go. 
There it is. So it's part of the differential diagnosis. And yeah. when doctors are looking at these people and there's no other clear explanation, or for example, I've had many patients who have been very stable, had ablations, stable for years, and they call me like, I've been really well, I've been fine. I had the booster or I had the vaccine, suddenly it's come back again. It, it, listen, you know, as you know, Drew, 80% of medicine is from the history of the diagnosis. Yes. People need to go back to the basics. Yes. Ask the patient questions, think about it carefully, and you'll get your answer. But if you don't consider the vaccine as part of the differential diagnosis, you're never going to diagnose it. You're going to dismiss it, and you're going to gaslight, unfortunately. People, patients are getting gaslighted who've got serious vaccine injuries. By the way, I have two patients where through the history, I have figured out middle-aged patients, fit and well, females, okay, almost certainly had myocarditis from the vaccine. But how it's manifested itself now is severe left ventricular impairment. These are people who are well. They have now going around in the community. They never went to hospital. They suddenly became a bit breathless. Nothing made sense. They had no virus Mm. in their history at all. They had the vaccine. You do an echo, severe left ventricular impairment. My diagnosis to them, clearly, primary diagnosis, likely cardiomyopathy, secondary to the vaccine. People go, These people are not being but diagnosed. People say, but, the, but the illness, the illness, the COVID itself can do the same thing. Yes or no? This, so, so that's a very good question. So COVID itself, severe COVID can cause all sorts of complications. But there's no evidence that mild COVID in the community can do this. And one of the main reasons is the virus essentially stays in the respiratory tract. If it doesn't go anywhere else, it doesn't affect the rest of the body. It doesn't seem to have that effect. There's no evidence. And certainly when you look at the data on myocarditis and even you look at the data on heart attacks, and cardiac arrest, they've actually done analyses where they've d- discounted COVID as an association, but clearly found a strong association, certainly with cardiac arrest and heart attacks, with the vaccine. So let's stay with myocarditis for a second. What, how big of a concern is subclinical myocarditis, and how do we even assess that? Okay, so honest answer is we don't know. Yeah. The only thing I would say is, I mean, you can, you know, people can have echocardiograms. The question is how are they, first of all, going to present themselves Hopefully, they won't present first and foremost with a fatal arrhythmia, although I suspect some many of these cardiac arrests are people with subclinical myocarditis are having cardiac arrests because of scar, okay, and they don't know it. Their first presentation is a cardiac arrest, no symptoms before then. Other people may be getting palpitations, maybe getting irregular heartbeats, and maybe getting a bit breathless. And like with all those patients that come to see me in my cardiology clinic, you know, you'll do an assessment and often a very simple safe test you can do is an echocardiogram. And that will give you a baseline. How, what's the left ventricular function doing? And if that's generally okay, you don't have to worry. Mm. If they're a bit more sick, then you might do an MRI and find scar. But the question then is, what do you do? You know, one of the things we, I teach my medical students, don't organize do a test unless it's going to change your management plan. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, you might, you might uh, I don't know, you might put one of the... Reassure uh, them. You well, you might put a rhythm them. monitor on them if they had a scar or something. You know what I mean? Yes. Just see if anything no, wrong. absolutely. So it no, does 100%. change things yeah, a little bit. And then AIVR, if that... Beta uh, you blockers know. and yeah. all that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so, all right. So... So I'm, what I'm hearing you say is what I've been suspicious of is that subclinical myocarditis is more of a thing than we think and that it might be responsible for the in, what seems to be a but yet undocumented increase in sudden deaths. Or have we documented that yet? Um, well, we know myocarditis itself generally is a cause. Traditional myocarditis is a cause of sudden cardiac death. So there's an extrapolation there that many of these myocarditis could well be causing the cardiac arrests. But are, we seeing, are these, we seeing more cardiac arrests in young people? Is yeah, that actually? Yeah, it's, it, yeah, we are. Why isn't that a headline what? somewhere? Why aren't people freaking be. out about that? Be. All right, so that's, so, yeah, so, yeah. okay. So there, so there are, so that what I've been worried about is, you know, you, all right, so there is more deaths. Um, is, 
you know, there's there's a whole story here of all cause mortality that I'm going to avoid with you just because I want to stay with the heart. And, yeah. and, I, and I think I need to bring you back to talk about seed oils and insulin resistance yeah, on another occasion. But just briefly on that, I yeah. don't think at the moment we've got any strong evidence to say that all cause mortality. It's a bit, you know, we don't know. It's a model. It's a but, model. Yeah, it's, it's a weird it, model. It's a model. But, yeah. but certainly we can dive into the data on specific conditions. And the cardiac arrest issue, and I'll tell you the story why I started looking into this initially, is that my father, um, who was a very fit 73-year-old guy, he was uh, you know, general practitioner, retired, vice president of the BMA. You know, I knew his cardiac history inside out. One of the healthiest guys in his community for his age. And uh, he suffered uh, a sudden cardiac death last July, 2021. And um, I was baffled. You know, I, I knew we were very close, but I knew everything about him in terms of his lifestyle. I knew his whole medical history. And um, I was, this doesn't make any sense. What's happened here? Has he had a small plaque rupture and had an arrhythmia and had a cardiac arrest because of that? Or I organized a post-mortem. The post-mortem findings were completely shocking and, un- and unexpected. He had two severe narrowings in his, in his arteries, in his LAD. He had a critical stenosis in his right coronary artery. No heart attack, okay, but just severe stenosis. He had a bit of angina for about 40 minutes and had a cardiac arrest. And uh, it didn't make any sense to me. I couldn't figure it out because we'd done, I'd done some routine checks on him a few years earlier. There was no real furring. There was normal blood flow. So he's, for some reason, the last two or three years, He's had a rapid progression of coronary artery disease. Ugh. I couldn't figure it out. I've never heard okay. of such a thing. A few months later, two or three bits of evidence started to emerge that then made me think, okay, hold on a minute. There's, there's a problem here. There may be a problem. Or there may, certainly at the beginning, this may now explain what happened to my dad. So those bits of data are, one, there was an abstract published in circulation. You may be aware of Stephen Gundry. And he published an abstract where he found using a, a validated test for inflammatory markers linked to heart disease risk and essentially coronary inflammation. He found within two and a half months in his patients, so he was for middle-aged patients, several hundred of them that he was following up, he found that within two and a half months of having the mRNA vaccines, the, their baseline risk of, of heart attack, which was 11% on average at five years, within two and a half months, Drew, jumped to 25% which is unheard of. If I today decided I was going to smoke 40 cigarettes a day, become completely sedentary, eat junk food, not sleep, I couldn't even get close to increasing my risk that much, okay, in a short space of time. So that was my first signal. Okay, what's going on here? I then got contacted by a whistleblower in a very prestigious British institution. I won't name them. I need to protect him. And he was very upset. And he said, listen, there's a group of researchers here, cardiologists. They have accidentally found using imaging of coronary arteries, uh, coronary inflammation, some new technology, which, which basically lights up with an isotope when there's plaques that are vulnerable to rupture and causing heart attacks, they found a clear signal with the vaccine versus unvaccinated. Hmm. They had a closed meeting and they said, we are not going to publish our findings because this may affect our research funding from pharma. Coming back to the corporate capture there again. There we go, okay? there it is. Right, so that was that. And that was like, oh, hold on a minute. We've now got replication of people independent of each other using different modalities of the same problem. I then got alerted again, it was in within a few weeks from a journalist here saying, Dr. Malhotra, we've been alerted, you know, I'm a, I'm a cardiologist has, has actually been involved very much in trying to change the understanding of heart disease, coronary inflammation, that's my expertise. So I know this stuff inside out. We have unexplained rise in heart attacks happening in these hospitals. What do you think is going on? And I thought, Jesus. Yeah. So I then started discussing, I went on GB News, I discussed it, it became a viral thing. And I just said, listen, it needs to be investigated. And then I thought, you know what? I'm now going to critically do my best to critically appraise the data myself, break things down the way I've discussed with you, 
And that didn't just involve me as a cardiologist and someone who's an advocate and an expert to some degree in evidence-based medicine, but also speaking to people in Oxford, in Stanford, in Harvard, in experts in their various fields, two investigative medical journalists, two Pfizer whistleblowers spoke to me, okay? And at the end of it all, I was like, wow, this is really, really, really bad. But anyway, coming back to the heart attack signal. So in this country, in the UK, we have 14,000 extra unexplained out-of-hospital cardiac arrests in 2021 versus 2020. Israel found similar data. They had a 25% increase in people uh, for call-outs from emergency services in, uh, in Israel, 25% increase in acute coronary syndrome, so heart attacks, and cardiac arrests in people aged between 16 and 39. Yes. I spoke to the, 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 the supervising author on this to ask him about what else did you find. He said, seem, the signal was there for all age groups, actually. It wasn't as high as a 16 to 39 age group, but it was there in over 60. It was there in everybody, right? So there is a signal. And they specifically said this was not associated with the COVID. This is with the vaccine. Wow. So, Drew, there's more than enough data. And then, of course, the final nail in the coffin is the Freeman paper, which looked at the original randomized control trial data, where I said the 1-800 serious adverse events. Then I asked him, what were the main serious adverse events? And he said 40%, the most common, were conditions related to clotting, which included heart attack, stroke, pulmonary emboli. So, it, listen, it, it doesn't, there's, there's more than enough data, Drew. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. I, I've, been, I've been watching it as well. And, and, and by the way, personally, I took the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and woke up with a unilateral raccoon eye. Uh, and sick and sick of shit, uh, and the and I I look it in the mirror thinking, oh my goodness, and I looked it up, and it turns out raccoon's raccoon eye is the presenting symptom of transverse sinus thrombosis, which was the deadly complication wow. of the <laughs> of the consumptive coagulopathy. So oh, and I but I felt I had no neurological symptoms, so I thought, well, we're just gonna have to see how this goes, and uh, it went away, thank God. But uh, I thought, man, wow. I'm gonna be the only other male to get this complication. But Gary, you've got some questions for us, team. I just have a question for both of you because I got to tell you, you guys are a real fucking bummer. I, I, it's what I'm worrying I, about all the time. You don't, you don't no, watch my streaming show. I'm going to bring. I watch, your, I watch your streaming show when I have the time. I okay. get the alerts when okay. you go live. Right. However, I, it, it's all a bummer. I guess my question is, as a someone in their late 30s who did what at the time everyone, including you, were telling people to do. You took the vaccine and the booster. Yep. Yeah, the booster you you were more hesitant about, I'm but much more I had a very very young child and yeah. there was bad illness in my family, so we whatever we made that decision. Yeah, but even let's say for both scenarios, just first dose. When gen- generally most people so, agreed. So what what is there to do now or worry about now or watch for and, now? And, and let me frame this by saying the, these are uncommon events these are not right. common but they're it's also uncommon to have a serious problem with covid right. so you didn't really need it as the thing you know could could we have made you sick for no good reason that's what you that, guys are, that's worrying about i think you guys are clear on that but We're i'm making just saying healthy people sick i'm that's, just saying as the, after 45 minutes of of that right. what are the things to do or be right. concerned about or look for for right. me and pretty much everyone i know when was your booster when that. was your booster how long ago uh a lo- long time. A year? At least. Dr. Mahatra, go ahead. Yeah, great question. Um, listen, I'm also in, a w- in many ways in the same boat. I had two doses of Pfizer. So I think about myself as well as my patients here. So the, the real honest answer is we don't know the long-term effects yet. Uh, wishful thinking, I hope, and it seems to be the case, certainly most of the serious adverse events seem to happen within the first few months. However, there is one caveat there. My father had a cardiac arrest six months after his second dose of Pfizer. 
And because of this mechanism where it likely accelerates coronary artery disease, people who are walking around, Drew will know this, a lot of people are asymptomatic with some mild furring. And I've seen at least two patients with rapid progression of coronary artery disease. So what will probably happen, what my concern is, we are going to see, and I'll be very honest with you, I can't lie to you, I think we're going to see a surge, an increasing surge in heart attacks going on for the next several months and years because and, of it. And, and yeah. we should come up with a treatment plan for that or some we sort should. of – And that it, means it, it, we the, need the, to – And Car- yes. by the way, pharma is welcome to participate. Maybe a statin is going to be the thing that will help this. Who knows? We don't know. It's, you know what I mean? If I were if I were Merck, I'd let's put them on simvastatin and see. Let's see if maybe we can have a – let's do a five-year perspective forward, you know, forward study. Is there anything proactive to be done? Should I be Watch getting- your lipids. Watch your lipids. And so. your insulin, your carbohydrates. Yeah, so, so it's a great question. <laughs> and in fact, actually, what's interesting is it's probably likely to some degree that the people who are more prone to serious adverse events are also people who are what we call metabolically unhealthy. And Drew will all know all about this because we're going to get out to the discussion of insulin resistance. We're, we're so not. We have to have would, another visit to do that. But, but go ahead. Sir. This, well, no, sure. But this is a great opportunity. What I would say, and in fact, some of my long COVID patients are being managed this way very well. A lot of them, there seems to be an association with obesity and long COVID as well, of course. is do everything you can. This is the time. Like, no, ever, uh, like there's no other time. There's no other incentive to, uh, you know, better incentive to do this is get yourself in shape. What does that mean? It means cutting out ultra-processed foods. It means moderate activity. It means keeping your stress levels in check. Make yourself better from an insulin resistance point of view. Get rid of that excess body fat. You are probably much less likely to suffer those complications. And that's what people should be doing, I think, moving forward. But of course, cardiovascular risk assessment, of course, is part of that as well. And I'm sure that will also be what something that we maybe need to think about you know, hitting more people so that we can prevent unnecessary harm moving forward in the future. But certainly, I agree with, I may go a bit further than Drew, but definitely for under 75s, I mean, one of the things that we should all do now, we should all be shouting and screaming from the rooftops. We need to, at the very least, suspend, do not let any more people have any more boosters under 75, any fit people. They should not be having it. And certainly for everyone over 75, they have the informed consent, make them aware of the potential risks. And we will then minimize and mitigate any harms going forward. Two things. Uh, you know, I, I, my father had horrible large vessel vascular disease and then got coronary disease late in his life. But there was something in our – I have metabolic syndrome on top of that. And I, I've been treating that aggressively since I was like 35 because I do not want to deal with what he had. And my calcium score is zero and I seem to have no Mate. no intimal anything, no, no uh, endothelial anything. And um, – but but I do two th- you know I take I keep my LDL well below 100 and I watch my carbohydrate intake and my HDL is high my triglycerides are low and uh, doctor okay. but it took a long time to no one ever recommended to me anything about the insulin thing I had to sort of suss that out myself uh, you know a few years ago who knows I could have you know anyway we'll, we'll you and I'll talk about that another date we have like just a couple more minutes there's sure. one one last topic I want to kind of dig into a little bit. Uh, and that is this so-called POT syndrome. I, I have been thinking from the beginning that the POTS was just subclinical myocarditis, uh, that people are just – they're just having a transient arrhythmia from their subclinical myocarditis and they're falling out. And I, a friend of mine uh, – I don't know if you have the well, – we can't really play it because uh, – but go look up Heather McDonald faint. A friend of mine's a comedian who just – I saw that. Yeah. I saw that video. And, and she and had I saw the, your interview with her, Drew, as well. I saw your interview with okay. her. And she had the vaccine sort of a couple weeks before. And, and then yeah. Bob Saget, same exact fall. He'd had COVID and the vaccine. So, again, he, he's not a – A very bad – a particularly bad combination, I don't COVID mean to- and the vaccine. 
the worst possible combination. Yep, yep. Uh, so am, am I on anything there or is there something separate associated with this thing? We'll call it POT syndrome or is it really just the same problem in, just with a different clinical manifestation? Yeah, great question, Drew. I honestly don't know the answer to that. Certainly the POTS is an issue and it definitely seems to be a, a, one of the complications and side effects of the COVID uh, mRNA vaccines. Um, and I, I have one person that I'm speaking to at the moment. He, were, he featured in a documentary I was involved with called um, A Second Opinion, Safe and Effective. Um, and he's really struggling with POTS. Uh, and in fact, in Parliament today, there was a few people with vaccine injuries and they were complaining of POTS as well. Interesting. So it seems to be quite So it prevalent. is a real thing. So it's, a, it's it not is, the myocarditis. It is real. It yeah. is real. It's right. okay. There's enough evidence to say it is a factor. It's yeah. causal. Yeah. What the prevalence is, we don't know, but yeah. it definitely is related to the vaccine for sure. So here's Heather's little uh, – we're just going to hear her. I know, if, I guess, for people to see this is there, Gary. But uh, here she is. She goes up on stage. She's at uh, the improv and Kapowa. Here it is. To brag, I don't care, but I want you to know, double-vaxxed, booster, flu shot, and I'm going to be honest, I have the shingle shot too. And I still get my period. What? Yes! Traveled, went to Mexico twice, did shows, meet and greets, never got COVID, clearly... Jesus loves me the most. Seriously. So nice. So nice. And then boom. Pow. Just completely collapses. And it's not, it, you know, syncope that I'm used to seeing is people, they go forward. That kind of backwards fall is no blood pressure. Like z- that, that's just zero blood pressure all of a sudden. That's yeah. odd. Very strange. It's not a typical vasovagal either because no. usually there's a warning and people sit down and they feel a bit unwell. Yeah, that they was, lean – their arm was, goes out. I, I'm used to arms yeah, hitting. That was you know, hitting. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I saw that. It was, it was, it was horrible to see and, and horrific to watch. And, uh, you know, the irony is she's talking about the vaccine. I know. I, I didn't hear – I never. I didn't realize she did a whole thing about the vaccine before. No. I didn't know that. But, but one thing that we've also uncovered is that <laughs> certainly German data, there is a – the more you have – so this is another reason not to have boosters unless you absolutely need it. The more you have, the, the greater the prevalence. Not, it doesn't start from That's zero fits, again. That fits my clinical it seems experience. To be, it fits yeah, my experience. It seems to be more likely to get serious adverse events. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we got to wrap up. Uh, listen, I appreciate you coming in. Uh, shall people go to your website? Do you have a Substack or anything that you want them to go to? Or? Yeah, no, I have a website. I'm on Twitter. I'm on you know, Instagram and Facebook. But yeah, that, my website is fine. People can have Dr. Asim, A-S-S-E-E-M.com. And that is uh, D-O-C-T-O-R. Thank you. Yes, it's all spelled out. I, I want to have you on my streaming show, too, with uh, another woman that those uh, ER doctors very concerned about some of these same issues and I'll try not to go over the same material <laughs> or, I'll, or sure. I'll coach her up not to and, um, and I think you know insulin resistance is a great topic as well, well we got to have you back resistance. for that that's what Kate yeah. that's why Kate I think put us together I think it was for that was it not I I yeah it was the, yes it was yes. and Kate Shannon has my favorite uh, one of my favorite uh, nutritional biochemist i mean she's she's so yeah, she's, she's honest, awesome. and honest and clear I like her. yeah it's great yeah. yeah so all right well thank you so much and uh for everybody we'll see you next time for calling times and topics follow the show on twitter at dr drew podcast that's d-r-d-r-e-w podcast the music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the dr drew podcast now available on itunes and while you're there don't forget to rate the show the Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and 
Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.